Welcome back to Meyerside Chats, an Inside the Daily Press podcast featuring discussions between local Renaissance man Evan Meyer and interesting residents designed to promote understanding and community. Inside the Daily Press podcasts are produced by the Santa Monica Daily Press, the city's premier news source for two decades. Visit smdp.com for the news of the day. Hello. Hey. Thank you for joining Meyerside Chats today. Thanks so much. You probably didn't know this, so it's a surprise, but we're actually going to be dancing for everyone today. Oh, we are. We are. I brought <laughs> instruments too. We're going to play. <laughs> we're at a music store. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Thanks so much. You've written a wonderful book. Thanks. Which I've had the privilege of reading. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing that you've put this all together through your experience. Um, and there's so much good stuff in here, uh, really centering around putting values into action. Yeah. And you've gotten a lot of this from business books like Jim Collins, good to great, which I've read also actually. So, um, I want to talk a, a bit about this book because I think it's super, it could be super influential in how we do things and, and how we actually lead by example um, and how we communicate with each other and how we build consensus together, which is a lot about what this podcast is about. Um, but in there also, there's some background about you and how you got started. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how did you get here? <laughs> to Santa Monica? <laughs> As the police chief of Santa Monica, yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, God, it's a long road, you know. I wanted to be a police officer since I was a kid. And I got to live out that childhood dream in Tucson, Arizona. Um, I was born in Los Angeles, but like things happen. My parents needed uh, childcare. Childcare was expensive in the mid sixties when I was born. And so my grandparents in, in Arizona were like, Hey, we got a free home here, no mortgage. And, you know, and as a bonus, then my grandparents were going to have a lot more access to me, their grandson. So I think that was part of what they were trying to do. And it worked anyway. I can remember the first time I wanted to be a cop, I was like maybe 10. And so I just stayed on that track, pursued it. I think that one of the things that I've taken from that experience as a kid to today is that I realize just how important it was to make sure for me now that we have connection with our young people in our community. Because I think that every day there's a young person that's growing up and has a heart of service and is trying to figure out like which direction to, to pour that into. Um, could it be public safety or could it be world care? You know, but they they need exposure and role models. And I think I would have tr thrived if I'd have had that, but I didn't. And so I found myself as a kid uh, riding my bicycle up to police officers that were doing traffic stops in order to try to like have some connection with, with a cop. And um, as you can imagine, like, you know, it's kind of weird, right? Because they're trying to make a traffic stop. And here's this kid riding up on a bicycle, just kind of like staring at them, trying to like start a conversation. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it was uh, really a lot of work through trying to um, convince my mom that I wanted to be this police officer. And, and, and um, she always wanted me to be something else, you know, like she was like, she had dreams of me becoming something else and not a cop. And so that was, that was, that was challenging, right? Because she didn't have any exposure to police officers either. Anyway, uh, got over that hump and I 
Got to spend 31 years in Tucson doing a wide variety of things, did everything, and, and was very fortunate to have that kind of exposure in a police department that was really all about um, community and accountability and, and gave me a really strong foundation for who I've become. Um, back then, 2015, uh, our police department was one of the first police departments that was selected by the Obama administration at the time to be one of the departments that was going to go around the country and talk about the implementation of 21st century policing. So one of like maybe 15 police departments in the country had got selected to do something like that. And so I was immersed in the ideals of advancing policing and, and getting ourselves to a better place. Um, the, um, the subsequent election in 2016 made it so that, um, you know, the, um, the, the ideals of, of that program just never really took hold in the way that I, I, th I think it should have. And so here we are, you know, four or five years later, seven, I guess, and, and we're now at a place, I think, where we need to make sure that we restart that conversation. And so a portion of that book was those thoughts that I had about how I thought that policing should improve and, and how should we, we should continue to um, extend ourselves to, to be those stewards that I think our community wants from us, right? They want to feel safe. They want to know that we're efficient and effective and we can get things done. Um, and, and at the same time that we're doing that, that we're stretching our legs and um, being progressive in a way that we're looking at the environment and changing with it. Because policing is a little bit like the Catholic Church. It just takes it a long time to kind of come around. But I don't think it always has to be that way. So, uh, so... So uh, I spent two and a half years or so being the chief in, in Mesa, Arizona, and um, did a lot of great things, got a lot, of, a lot of good things were accomplished there. You implemented the strategies in this book. I did. Um, and although I never called them the, you know, the principles of, of 21st century policing while I was there, I, I followed that same guidebook. And um, I felt good about what we, the success I saw in, in you know, looking back. And so afterwards... We started getting into the pandemic. We were in a phase of being shut down. And so my, my, my friend and I, Mark Ziska, um, we got together and thought about what we had accomplished and thought we'd write about it. And so that's how, that's how Do No Harm was, was brought to life. It was during the pandemic and during a period when we didn't have a lot of outlet. And so, and I had a lot of things in my mind because of the things that I was seeing that were occurring with the protests that were occurring after the, the murder of George Floyd and um, the way that some of those protests were being handled and I could see what the answers were and I, and I didn't have an outlet. So we wrote about it. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed reading it um, throughout. And again, it puts so many different pieces of things that I've learned in business, actually. Oh, And again, good to great's an, an example. Yeah, but yeah. like, um, you know, when it comes to values, uh, when it comes to trust and communication and building relationships. Um, the, you know, you mentioned something about being the kid on the bicycle to go talking to police officers at the yeah. traffic stops. Yeah. Um, you know, not everyone takes that approach. Obviously you found an interest. Yeah. At an early time where most people, most people don't do that. Even today, I don't see a lot of people go up to officers. Unfortunately, and speak to them like they're a person in the community. They're they're and 
And I think you describe a little bit in this book about why that is. Um, but that would be one of the things, at least in my opinion, that would build more trust and connection is when there is that authentic conversation between two people, not us and them. Yeah. How do we get there? You know, um, not only am I working internally in conveying the message that every interaction that we have for our officers in the public is meaningful so that, for example, if you run across an officer walking in, in or out of a coffee shop and an officer holds the door open for you, like that's going to be memorable for you because that's likely the only interaction you're going to have with a cop. You know, unless you have the misfortune of getting in a traffic accident or you're burglarized, which are the two biggest reasons why police interact. I mean, uh, regular folks interact with the police, right? They're, they're being stopped on traffic or traffic accident or burglary. Like that's like the two big things of, of how folks interact with the cops. So unless that happens, like that one moment is really meaningful for the person, the regular person that, that just, you know, happens to run into an officer. So I tell the officers like, that is really important. That small interaction is going to be the, the thing you set in that person's mind for that day. I mean, you never know what the impact that's going to have and how they're going to react to it. So at the same time, I'm having those conversations with the officers and trying to get us, move us from this period of, of anxiety and social unrest that happened in the last couple of years um, and rebuilding that. Uh, at the same time, I'm having those conversations internally. I'm also having conversations externally with every member of the public that I run into. And I'll say the same thing. I'm like, they're say because often I hear them say, "Well, what can we do? What what can we do?" And and because they want to help with this relationship thing, and so I'll say, you know, you don't have to say thank you for your service. You really don't. Really appreciate when you do, but you don't have to say that. I said, if you just smile and say hi, like you wouldn't believe like how far that takes us in our day and maybe even in our week because the officers are exposed to a lot of stuff, a lot of chaos, a lot of a lot of things that. You know, I'm still carrying the things that I saw 30 years ago. And luckily, I found like a nice little spot to put them into. But those things are pretty much going on all, you know, day to day, week to week for police officers. So when they run into a citizen who just says hi and is smiled, like that makes their day. Like they may not show it, but internally, like that's part of the thing that kind of keeps us going. Because you're yeah. like, wow, thank you. And cool. Like, yeah. like it's it's just an amazing thing. So... I'm working on both sides of it, trying to make sure that we bring folks together and making sure that we have a connection with young people in our community. Yeah. Because of because of my deficit, because of what I what I grew up missing. So I mean, I, I think you're right in the idea that if you don't make an active approach to speak with officers on duty, because you don't know who's an officer off duty, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but um if you don't make that af active approach, then the only time you really see or speak to an officer is when you're, for most people, is at those traffic stops or, or when you're pulled over. Right. Yeah. Or you're the victim of something. You're the victim of something. Right. And now, and now that's not really fun for anyone. And you have to have this uncomfortable thing and everyone's trying to do their best and... I guess the person getting the ticket is trying not to get a ticket. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, the, and the officer is trying to be civil and um but that you know even that moment like i always thought like even with the with with parking i'll use parking tickets you wouldn't you were the <laughs> police officer but the parking tickets always like hey here's a ticket um you're in trouble um 
and not and you know you have you better pay this <laughs> or there's going to be consequences and it's in like colors that are like angry colors red <laughs> <laughs> it's got a whole bunch of aggressive thing and and actually a lot of government documentation feels that way anything in taxes feels that way from the state right yeah. it's always like rah 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 do this or else and and you're like, wow, I didn't mean to do that at all. Why are you yelling at me? <laughs> That's how I feel when I receive that stuff. Like you make an innocent mistake and then you get yelled at and there's big punishment. I always wondered if there was an opportunity to like, at the ticket level, when you're dealing with a police officer at that moment, that one or two times that you get in a decade or five, whatever that mm-hmm. is, like you're saying, you can change the entire conversation just by those interactions. You know, even... So I was a, a motor cop for six years. So, you know, leading a group of motor officers, uh, I, was, I was their sergeant. And I got to tell you that um, for most police officers, you're going to find that they um, have given more warnings than they've given citations, right? And and uh, really, there's no trick to it. I think that the, the best approach is just to be friendly with the officer when you get pulled over because... If I look back and think of the many times that I gave somebody a warning and didn't write the ticket, it was like, I don't know, easily, you know, in the 90 some percentile that folks were being friendly and, and just acknowledged, right? I mean, a, a huge component of that is on me as well. If I walked up and just said, hey, how's it going? You know, the reason why I pulled you over, like right away, disarm them. Hey, the reason why I pulled you over is X, Y, Z. And... um and so right there, there's like that engagement that's going on. And I'm telling you that I can remember that for the folks that were like, oh, well, I thought it was this, this, and this. And now it's like, I thought the speed limit was X. You know, it's usually close to what they were going. And I'm like, no, it's actually like, whatever, 15 miles lower than that normally. Right. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, it was actually 25. You know, you're going 45. So, um, so it was in those conversations that I found that I gave people a break because it was like they were friendly, they acknowledged it, they gave me their you know, registration or license and everything was in order and it was just kind of like, okay, hey, slow down. Yeah. Not even a written warning, right? And I find that um, for most officers that I run into, like that I know and, and have ga- engaged with, like that's their demeanor. Like they just, they're, they don't really go out there with the sole purpose of writing traffic tickets motor cops are a little bit different because that's their job but even those i think that you would find that that yeah. folks demeanor and how they approach is, is um part of the results that come out of that so it's it's an interesting dynamic on traffic stops so <laughs> sure um yeah and i know there's some I, I remember growing up and always thinking there was like quotas there's like ticket quotas yeah. i don't know if that how that plays into it um for some versus not others. But I know that, you know, I, I think one of the things that um, always concerned me was when they are dealing with all of these different types of people, when they, you know, during the day, they do have all of these um, interactions. interactions that can be extremely stressful. Right, they go high, low, back down, up and down. You have yeah. to go home to your family with that. And you have to, whatever you saw, whatever you dealt with, whatever, if there could have been gore, it could have been uh, something domestic that was particularly disturbing. Um, and boy, for the last three years, the last few years, it's even be, been more challenging with all of the 
poor rhetoric and, and media around police officers and, you know, kind of impugning the entire um, police organization, law enforcement in general, for some bad apples. Um, and I know there's a lot of stress there. That's even more than the normal amount of stress you'd have. It's like it's this. Uh, it, it pooled in the last two years uh, through COVID and the riots and all that kind of stuff. Um, and these guys have done incredible work. And I guess what do you? Where do you feel? And I know there's again you've you've written a little bit about the importance of this in this book on employee wellness. Are there um, programs or uh, or really thoughts that you have on the best ways to improve employee uh, officer wellness? Yeah. So. Um, I'll touch back on the quotas. I think that that is a great example of how um, we have evolved over time, right? So I have no doubt that in the earliest beginnings of things, and, and well, I think even some police departments like Ferguson, I think Missouri, was found to have been employing um, traffic citations as a way to sustain the financial well-being of that city way back in the day, 2014, whenever that 2015, whenever that, that investigation unfolded. But we've learned from those things and we continue to evolve and move forward. So, you know, I, we obviously in, in today's day and age, a department like Santa Monica does not, you know, support or or, or follow the guidelines of quotas uh, as, as one thing that, that just to point out, like how we've are constantly learning and moving forward. On the topic of resilience and wellness, I think it is really important that we understand just like you described, that the officers uh, go through this full range of emotions, you know, and, and that happen to them. They see and experience things in just their one 40-hour week that most people may not see, like, in their lifetime. Um, and it's the full range of, of folks that are get angry, that want to fight, to um, helping somebody in a situation where they're in dire need of, of just a human being stepping up and, and filling a void for them. Um suicides. I mean, there's so much that they get exposed to. And so what I've written about and what I espoused is the importance of ensuring that their, that their resilience and their mental well-being is taken care of internally. So one of the things that I think is really tough on any organization and any bureaucracy, especially in city government, is that internally, the workings of the organization and the fact that we're a city entity, a government entity accountable to the people makes it so we have a lot of rules and so that environment in and of itself can sometimes um, be very stressful to employees. So not only are they dealing with, you know, the things that happen to them externally, but also internally how they're treated. Um, they make a mistake and, you know, how big of a deal does that get turned into somebody's mistake? And so my, my view on this is really holistic in that I'm looking at all of it, right? We have to make sure that internally we treat people with fairness and transparency, like the same kinds of things that we are asking the officers to do when they go out there and talk to people in the community, right? If they're not being treated fairly and with transparency internally and given a, a shot to renew themselves after they make a mistake, the, how is it that we're expecting them to go out there and practice the same thing with the people that they run into that make a mistake when they break a traffic law and do it at that point? look at the person and kind of go, all right, I get it. You know, you were distracted because of whatever. Just watch the stop signs. Okay, move on. Because he's been treated the same way internally, right? He's a human being. He's made mistakes. And so, yes, his job is public safety. But is public safety, a component of that is on that one particular moment, he just educated somebody on the importance of stopping at a stop sign. He did his job. Mm -hmm. 
the same way that internally, if an officer makes a mistake and we figure out a way to renew him from that mistake and there's an acknowledgement, okay, I made a mistake and you know, I'll, I'll won't put myself in that situation again. That's what I need to hear. And, and that's what I want in order for us to be able to move forward. Of course, this job that we've taken on is, um, is, um, got a lot of responsibility with it. So that's why we train so much on, on being very specific about life and death issues because lives are really on the line. Um, and so there are some mistakes that are, are such grave concern that we, we can't uh, recover from those. Right. And so that could lead to somebody's uh, termination of employment, but it, that is something that we all go into it understanding just how risky this job is and, and, and how much is on the line when we say we're going to go out there and, and protect other people's safety and, and how we represent that aspect of government that, that does that. Nonetheless, those are like all the reasons why I think about the importance of ensuring that we take care of our folks internally and that so that there are mechanisms for them to be able to um, kind of de-stress and unwind on, on especially some of the really heated issues and, and difficult moments that they encounter. Um, we have found success at the Santa Monica Police Department with groups of officers that do this internally within themselves. Like we have a group that's volunteered to basically say, we're going to be part of the peer support team that ensures that our officers are doing okay and that we continually check on them if they've been through something traumatic. Um, on top of that, we've got professional clinicians that, that are on board that help us with um, advancing that care. Uh, but certainly initially it is on our peer team and, and in the way that I start with myself and that the way that our leadership team, our command staff, the way that we lead and manage our officers so that they understand that we look at everybody as a human being, that nobody is perfect, and that for those mistakes that we make, that we can recover, like that is exactly the road that we're going to um, look to pursue so that people don't feel like they're coming into work, which is supposed to be a safe, a safe space, so they don't feel as though they come into work and they've got to be like looking around their back because they don't know you know, where the next thing could come from and that could hurt them, right? Human beings, if you think back from the early, earliest stages of human life, right, they come out of the cave and they'd be like, okay, what can hurt us? Right. <laughs> so, so for police officers who have to don this uniform and do this kind of work, like they're constantly thinking about what can hurt them. And I don't want them to be thinking about what can hurt them inside the organization. I want them to feel safe in the organization. We practice um, high levels of accountability and responsibility for one another. And I never have a concern internally that, um, that if we have somebody that makes a mistake that we're not going to address it. Like we can love our officers and love our folks uh, at the same time that we hold ourselves accountable. Like you can do both. You can um, have high expectations and accountability at the same time that you're continuously looking for ways to take care of them. Sure. Are there specific modalities or um, ways that you manage or promote the management of stress? Reduction. Stress. Ma the management of, yeah, or stress, yeah, stress management, stress reduction. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So um, interestingly, I just had sent uh, two of our officers to this uh, uh, nationwide symposium on wellness and resiliency. Um, and I can't wait to sit down and talk to them about what they learned or what programs are, are out there and what ideas they came across about how we can improve the things that we are doing. So I feel fortunate that I've come into this police department who has 
practice a lot of progressive ideals in policing. So, for example, one of the things that's very is still very difficult is to try to get officers to open up um, and to allow themselves to be vulnerable with their peers and to say, you know, I'm not feeling good about, you know, what that last call that we took. You know, I feel bad about uh, what I saw or what we experienced. And to be able to do that in a way that's a safe space, because remember, officers are supposed to be like tough and be able to have all the answers and, and all that. But yet they're human beings still susceptible to the same challenges that we all have. So uh, Santa Monica has always been very progressive on a lot of different fronts. And one of them has been that they've been tackling this issue of breaking down the stereotype of allowing for officers to say that it's that, you know, it's OK that they they're looking for somebody to. Um, listen and to be there for them in those moments of, of crisis or, or deeper thought and, and support. Um, so my idea in sending these two officers to the symposium was that it's, it's great that we're already doing good things. Let's, let's uh, continuously stay on top of it and see what else is out there that we can do in order to further this mission of ensuring, of ensuring that our officers will retire one day after 20, 25 years, whatever it is that they have to do. Um, on their terms that they figured out, okay, you know, my, it's my time to retire and I feel good and it's time to go and they can, they can kind of close that chapter of their life versus they go through a series of incidents or mistakes and, and um, that leads to an early retirement or, or not, a, not a high level of job satisfaction. satisfaction. I, I want them to feel good about what they're doing and coming to work and a, a huge component of that is how we support them internally so that they can be successful out there. Yeah. I hope all that makes sense. It makes plenty of sense. Yeah. yeah, no. And I know that you do think holistically about, about this and kind of the way that you treat people in case X is the way that you need to treat people in case Y and the way that you, you, you want to be, the way that you want to be treated is how you should treat others. The golden rule. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Almost right back to right. a lot Basics. of times, a lot of times in some of these conversations we come back to like these like preschool concepts. <laughs> That's so often we haven't grasped as adults or we've forgotten, forgotten, <laughs> we've gotten distracted. We've, uh, however, our opinions started to shape our narratives of our life. And then you forget the most basic things. I think in policing, it's interesting because there's, um, there's always this fog of chaos of something's always going on. And so it's, um, you know, you finish one assignment, one mission, and then next, you know, uh, because of the nature of what we do, there's something else that piles up on top of that and on top of that. And um, and it's easy to get caught up in that moment of you know adrenaline and, and on to the next thing. And, and so I think it's important, and I've got really good folks, I think, to, um, to help ensure that we have those um, speed bumps in, uh, in order for us to kind of like, okay, slow down a little bit in order to catch our breath and make sure that we're taking care of our folks so that, like I said, they're resilient in, in order to go out there and do the very best that they can be, right, in, in very stressful situations. Like, that's that's my biggest thing, is I want to make sure that they feel good about what they're doing and so they can go out there and make good decisions and, and um, be focused on what's in front of them and not be carrying baggage around from what could be behind them, right? Yeah. Like that's the part I want to minimize, if not eliminate. Yep. It's interesting. You know, one of the things you bring up uh, in the book is about resistors. People who resist things. <laughs> <laughs> Not like diodes, transistors. <laughs> for the, for those listening, 
Uh, the chief knew that. <laughs> but uh, for clarification purposes, um, and the people who like to dissent for, the, for whatever reason, and you gave five uh, types of resistors, uh, resistance categories, um, but all sort of leading back to this sort of um, loss of control. And so yeah. I'm sure I know you have a, probably a ton to say about this. And, you, you know, I, look, I change is uh, always challenging. Right. And um, there's like this age old saying, I think it could probably apply anywhere, but we use it a lot in policing is that um, police officers often say, you know, that um, they dislike the way it, that we're doing things now, but they uh, dislike even more the idea of changing it. <laughs> so it's kind of like, OK, so what do we do? And, and so I am the proponent of always ensuring that we are kind of stretching our legs and not staying stagnant and continually growing. Because I think that as human beings, we're wired to kind of continually look forward, even though sometimes it's a little scary uh, or what have you. But organizationally or individually, we need to continue to always have a vision of, of where we want to be. And along that path, um, some changes will occur in, in areas where folks have a lot of ownership over something. And just the thought that, that that dynamic could be changed, I think is scary to the folks that have that ownership, that have invested themselves into creating what they have. Um, and, and so it, it does become challenging. And I and I'm thoughtful about the fact that, that those folks have invested their time and energy in doing those things. And so I'm careful when I come across uh, those situations to not not break their spirit to not uh, um, harm you know their synergy and what they're doing but at the same time you know I have to figure out whether or not I need to continually nudge nudge in order for us to get to a better place or work within what they're doing in order for us to continue to to move the organization forward because because there are so many times that I don't want to lose folks, right? I don't want to lose their energy. I don't want to lose what, they've, what they're bringing to the table. Um, but at the same time, I have to be focused on the greater good and the fact that the organization has to continue to improve and continue to get better because that expectation, right? I'm, I'm really tied to the expectations of the community in the police department and the fact that um, rightfully so, our residents in our community want more of us, not less or not the same sometimes. And and certainly if we've identified either internally or with the help of folks telling us that we need to make uh, specific changes, that we need to be responsive to that, that we can't just ignore that. So yeah. in the process of those things, I think you're right. You know, like I've described, we, we run across folks that um, really want to hold on to their systems or their beliefs. And therein lies the challenge of, you know, nudging and moving and continually advancing. Sure. And it, and it goes a step further in the idea of building trust with communities where I think, and one of the, I guess the, uh, the question is somewhat predicated, predicated on is the idea that if you're going to build trust within the community, we want them to feel that they can trust the police officers, right? Because I think you say something like um, people who obey laws are um, know that there is a legitimate reason to trust and obey the people who are telling them, the authority that's telling them to do it. So how do you see the resistance around, we'll say, the general 
idea of policing or officers? How can we move this this forward? So, uh, so it starts off by ensuring that you have and you build trust within the organization. So you can't go out there and begin the work of trying to elicit trust in the community until you get your house in order, until you understand internally um, if there is a, a lack of cohesion or alignment you know, within the organization. And, and so that requires trust building internally. And so that goes back to, I think, originally what we were talking about earlier in, in making sure that you treat your folks internally uh, with fairness. So how do we go out there and, and, and uh, ensure that the community and the public at large will listen to us when we speak and when we portray or ask for witness information or respond to a call for service. That all comes from the behaviors that we've been exhibiting in that community and how um, we have shown ourselves to be human and how, you know, through continual um, emphasis on the things that we got right is, is um, put out there and, and talked about. It is how the officers behave. It is it is those stories that are told. Um, I think sometimes the interactions that we have in the community, um, we don't realize, right, that, that the interactions that we have in the community, both positive and negative, have these ripple effects. But it all goes back to, principally speaking, that, that folks start off from a position of trust. And therein lies, I think, some of the challenges in policing in the country and is that there have been some. There have been many moments, especially um, for African Americans in this country, that have experienced, you know, a level of policing that was not commensurate with what was occurring in other parts of the country. And and so, those experiences are the things that uh, where we fell short. I think those experiences are essentially the things that that hold us back from getting to those levels that we need to be. And and so. I think therein lies the work that we have to continually do in building trust because that's like we're, we're never going to be done trying to show people that this, that this organization that holds so much power is, um, is going to be careful in using that power with benevolence and, and ensuring that they're doing it fairly and equitably. Um, but, but that's the responsibility that we've taken, right? That's, that's I think, from my perspective, um, that's something that we are going to continually have to work on always the work of building relationships and, and getting people to trust us. Like that's never ending. It, there's a new generation coming in right after one after another. Right. And, and we have to be doing the work of ensuring that folks trust us. And that's not easy, uh, but it starts inside. And then we project and work through that in our actions, in our, the way that we take care of people every day. Right? It's like, it's like a full cycle and it never ends. Like yeah. we're never, we're never in my, in my estimation in policing, we're never going to reach a point where boom, we've reached like the best we can, we can be. Like, Everyone's happy all the time. No, no optimal, way. optimal case, optimal utopian relationship. We, <laughs> we have to continually work at getting better. And that, that work is just never going to end. Never. Yeah. So, that's interesting. There's too many variables and there's too many disruptions that happen that would make for perfection in a sense, right? Where yeah. every single person optimally thinks about every person in the police department perfectly. Well, I guess in general, it's hard to achieve perfection, but yeah. part of the idea is if you, if you know, if you believe it, you get closer. <laughs> so, so um, the title of the book, Do No Harm, and it's, it's visionary, right? And a vision is something that is hard to achieve. 
I would tell you that um, the the ideals of saying do no harm in our profession of policing is really hard to achieve because we're dealing with a country that's got 300, 330 million people. Um, and I forget what the estimate is, current estimate is of a number of weapons in the country far exceeds the number of people. So in in this country, you know, there's there's a, a sliver of society who is just kind of hell-bent on always doing harm. And many of those folks are armed. And so if I'm saying our challenge in policing is to do no harm in our interactions with the public, it's really difficult when you think about the fact that a sliver of the of the population is hell-bent on doing harm and they could be armed while doing it. Yeah. So harmed and armed. Har- <laughs> so that's just your next book. <laughs> so but but I still think even though the even though the odds are stacked against that, I still think that my vision is that in policing our our charge and what we our charge and what we should be trying to do is to do no harm in those interactions that we have where we can make a difference and and so yeah, the it's a it's kind of a great vision of of trying to make sure that in every interaction that we have we don't harm somebody given the totality of what we deal with, it's pretty difficult, but that's what I want to do. That's what I, what I keep saying internally of where our level of excellence and training and, and um, you know, decision-making and identifying the issue in front of us, making the best decision possible so that the outcome is nobody gets hurt. Um, that's what we're striving for. That's, that's the idea. Oh, and by the way, at the same time that I say that, I also want to make sure that we are protecting the public, arresting bad guys, and, and doing our job to keep public safety. So it's not like I'm just saying, we're just gonna stand back and not do anything. I'm saying, no, we're gonna go out there and provide the best public safety that we can, keep our community safe. And at the same time that we're doing that, we're gonna employ every um, uh, tactic and training and ideal to keep people safe in, in, the, um, in the outcome of those things. Yeah. Um, well, not, do not it, easy to do, right? It's but, not, but you do it. You The way that you break it out is there's two types of police uh, or law enforcement. There's the warrior mindset or the, and the guardian mindset, right? Yeah. And can you explain a little bit about how, and you are promoting coming from a guardian mindset? So w- without, without a doubt, I think that there are times in every officer's, um, you know, shift, I think, where... The moment could come that they are called in to be a warrior and to go in and and to display courage and save the day in a situation where we're dealing with that sliver of the population that I talk about that is um, it just wakes up in the morning with the, the thought that they're going to go out and harm somebody else, you know. And for those, we have to always be aware that they're in our population. And for those instances, our officers have to go into that mindset of courageousness and, and warrior mentality in order to, to save the day. Um, the vast majority of the time, we're operating in a guardian mentality where we're just making sure that our community is safe and, and that we're doing everything we can um, to deal with the everyday issues that happen. And not every situation calls for us to be in this um, hyper-focused um, life or death type of um, type of stance with the people that we're dealing with. Um, it doesn't mean that... Here's the difficulty, right, of that, is that it doesn't mean that for the officer, even though he's got to, like be calm and cool like he's not thinking in the back of his mind you know he's, he's got to always be aware of the surroundings and, and what can hurt them right um but therein lies the great challenge of what i'm asking and is that is that um i think that we have the capacity to continually get better and improve um, we hire we recruit and hire some of the very best people 
and uh, it's very intense. And once you're in, you're part of, of a, a group of folks that are all kind of focused on the same issues and have the same mentality about service to others. Um, and they come to the table with that, right? I said, you know, every day there's um, a young person with a heart of service that's coming out and, and trying to figure out which way they're going to go. So we want them, right? We want those folks. And, and by and large, they're in our ranks. Um, and, and we, my job, I think, is we leverage those things in order to get us to this ideal of trying to do no harm in our interactions with the public. Um, but it, but there's no doubt that there are those moments when our officers are called to summon all the courage that they have, despite whatever they're fearing that's right in front of them, and and um, and be that warrior to save the moment. So, but but luckily, you know, we live in a society, and certainly the city of Santa Monica is is. Um, pretty great place to be and uh, so that's not something that we often have to draw to um, doesn't mean that we don't have like a whole host of other issues that we contend with in Santa Monica and, and have to address but uh, but I feel good about the overall safety of, uh, of our city right and you know I guess that's a good sort of segue into um, this exciting new territory and surveillance of, of drones Unmanned aerial systems. Unmanned aerial systems. <laughs> yes. UASs. Yeah. Yep. Uh, tell or me drones. Little, or drones. <laughs> or drones. Obviously, this is a this is a fun one because um, you can get into a bunch of sides of the drone conversation. But tell me a little bit more about your experience with it and um, and how you see that of helping Santa Monica in the future. Sure. So Santa Monica has had a uh, UAS uh, program. Uh, for a long time. And so here more recently, we um, partnered up with a, with a company that also has a UAS system. And what we are doing is we're using um, one of their employees as the main pilot and their UAS system. And what we're doing is we're responding to 911 calls for service with their UAS and their pilot and our officer that sits inside a room about the size of this one with TV monitors that he can see what the UAS can see. And he can hear what the, what the officers and the 911 dispatcher are dispatching back and forth, the call for service. So we are sending the UAS uh, as soon as the call comes out. And because it's obviously got no impediments, right? It's just flying around buildings and getting to the call. It can get to a call like very quickly, much quicker than most of the officers can get to it. And once it gets there, it can lay eyes on, on what's occurring and through the officer then relay back to the responding officer what's occurring. So some situations have happened, for example, where um, a guy experiencing some kind of crisis is walking down the street. He's breaking things, you know, and he breaks the guy's uh, windows, I think, at his apartment. Um, guy calls 911. We get the UAS overhead pretty quickly, and, but we don't see anybody. So the UAS operator down below, you know, the one that's um, looking at the monitors, he calls the complainant. He's like, hey, we're here. We're overhead. Um, which way did the guy go? And so the, the victim comes out and he's like, what? Oh, my God. You're here already, you know. So um, he says, well, he went around the corner this way. And so then that officer relays that, to the, that information to the responding officers. And sure enough, you know, they catch the guy like about, a block away or whatever they catch they caught him with the drone yeah hey yeah. stop it, it has no no nope. so so the no not like that <laughs> soon so the, 
next level. No, just kidding. Um, so, so he directs the officers to where they're at, and then they make the stop and identify him as being the guy that had done it. In a situation like that, normally, by the time the officers would have responded to the victim's house and the guy had already now been walking probably two, three, four blocks away, there's no way that we would have figured out who he was. I mean, there's, unless he was the only one walking down the street, you know, there's, it's impossible for us to nab that person and identify them as the culprit or the suspect. But because of how this happened, um, that's just like one example of where the UAS has been so valuable because it can get there so quickly. And so once it gets out to a particular call, then on its way back to home base at the main station, like it'll zigzag across the city and it'll respond to different calls. So if there's like a traffic accident in a particular intersection, a man down in a alleyway, you know, unknown trouble, unknown disturbance at a different place, like it'll bounce from call to call and it'll give like updates. It'll say, just went to, you know, such and such cross street and there's no more, there's no, there's no, no one's blocking the intersection. There's no cars that match the description on, on either corner. So this accident is clear, just so you know. So it lowers that priority of that call because they're not there anymore. Um, that person that was in the alleyway is actually up and walking now. So they're not, it's not like they're down or need medical, medical help. It looks like they're up and walking. So, I mean, they give updates as to that information and then, that allows us to reprioritize what calls we're going to with the scarce resources that we have. Um, I'll give you a quick story on a um, prowler call that we had. So prowler calls are, are historically difficult for us to catch the bad guy, right, that's prowling around. Because at night, um, you know, as soon as a person that's lurking around hears a car or what have you, then they like lay low. Define prowler. Like uh, at middle of the night, you know, somebody says, Hey, I, just, I think I just saw somebody in my backyard. You know, that's like a prowler, right? Okay, it hasn't done anything yet, but they're, they you get a call that they're out there doing. Well, if they're in your yard, yeah. like that's probably not where they're supposed to be right, right off the bat, right? Like, So a yard one, but on the street, what if you're like on the street? Can you be a prowler? Um, yeah, you could be a prowler if you're, uh, you know, seen kind of looking into people's cars or Got it. looking into somebody's window. Got you it. know, because we have that. Varying degrees and types of prowler. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, stuff that we can narrowly say, very focused, identify as they're up to something. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so we deploy, the, we deploy the UAS overhead. And sure enough, um, you know, it flies so high that people can't really hear it. And, and so they identify somebody that's nearby where the call's at and it's the only one it's the only person that's in the area and it's at night and because we can like pick up the heat source we can see them um then that officer directs the uh officers that are responding into where this guy is now hiding because as soon as he hears the car then he like gets in the bushes and like ducks low so normally we would never find that guy because we drive right by him right and as soon as we're out of the area, you know, because we'll check and check and nope, can't see anybody. So when yeah, we, There's no trigger for him to hide anymore. And then he, they pop back up and yeah. they're... Uh, he doesn't uh, hear it, he doesn't know, so you have more time to observe and... So we get in there and, and for one of the first times in a long time that we were able to find a prowler when we actually get a prowler call, I mean, that was it. And there have just been numerous instances where the UAS gets deployed. Uh, there was a, a, a theft going on at the Apple store and the promenade. And we get overhead just as the guy is leaving the store, fighting with the security guard. He runs down to promenade and then ducks into another store. We stay overhead watching that store. 
uh, guide the officers in. That guy comes out after he has stolen something from that store and then gets immediately arrested. So it's like all these things that are happening that we otherwise would just have never had a chance to address them. And and the UAS can get to the calls in in much shorter time and address that service need that we're before, you know, okay, sorry, you know, we're really got a lot of calls. We can't get to your call just yet. Yeah. But because the officers can get there with the UAS and have communication with the person that's making the 911 call, like we are delivering a service that before we couldn't, before we couldn't deliver. Right. So it, it is, it is working out really well. Um, the privacy concern is addressed by the fact that the, the company that we've, um, done this pilot program with pun intended pilot uh is a (laughs) is is a private company that they're in charge of of uh, maneuvering the uas around buildings and looking out for other aircraft and things like that um they have their operating guidelines that say you know you're not going to do surveillance on people uh that's just like without without a warrant or without a reason when we when we deploy the uas in that situation they're going because there's a 911 call that says we need your eyes and ears, your assistance in this area for this. There's a disturbance. It's localized surveillance for a specific cause. It's for, not for, widespread yeah. surveillance. I right. think that word gets a bad yes. rap and it gets generalized. So you have so you have the pilot up there that understands and is not going to risk their company's um, well-being or their contract or what have you or the reputation uh, by doing something they're not supposed to. Then you have the police officer that's looking at the monitors and looking at the screens, and he knows what the operating guidelines for Santa Monica are, so he's not going to break the rules. So you have this kind of check and balance going on between two different entities that kind of check each other to make sure that they're not um, engaging in any kind of surveillance activity that is not a part of the 911 call that got them dispatched to go look for something specific. Yeah, so, and with the best pr- practices of accountability they would hold each other accountable to that right. as well. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. And I remember you, we were chatting earlier a little bit about just the dispatch um, situation currently. I don't know if it's a situation, but how the the city runs the dispatch program. Yeah. Right? Um, which is interesting. I've called dispatch a handful of times, or 911, and this I have a... a handful of situations where like I was would see a guy and follow him safely uh, and call maybe like 10 times because th- there's no way in traffic on Ocean Avenue. You Ocean told a- me that story. You told me that's right. You yeah. Know. Like I'm like, there's just no way on Ocean Avenue they're going to get this guy. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's Saturday afternoon. You can't move 10 feet. Like, and I remember I was at Ocean and Broadway and I followed him to the 7-Eleven on, on um, uh, 7th and Wilshire. I called a bunch of times and I'm like, hey. Okay, now he's here. Now, now he's here, just letting you know. And they're like, what's your phone number? I'm like, you got my, like, it's the number on the thing. So I, wh- where, it, where do you see, and I knew there was just, there's a little disconnect there. And I don't think it's for, there, I think what I did was not common probably. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't calling repeatedly to give updates to dispatch about the locations of criminals. <laughs> so, um, but there is an opportunity, I think, for people to help. And I don't know if that's on the dispatching front specifically, but I guess my first question, it's a two-part question. The one is, where is the opportunity on dispatching, given that the um, police department currently does not operate um, those particular operations? Uh, And secondly, 
where is there opportunity for people who do want to be involved to actively support and help the police department? So um, you're right. I think for clarity, it's important that um, the public knows that under the current configuration, the 911 and dispatch center for both police and fire do not fall under either the police or the fire department. It falls under the Office of Emergency Management, which is um, under the city manager's office. And I think that the time will come in the future where I think that we will have a conversation about um, moving the 911 center under the, um, the umbrella of the police department simply because we are the, are the biggest user of 911 and the dispatching center. Um, that doesn't mean that the fire department would not have a, a stake or a foothold in that. They would because, you know, they're obviously our partner in, in, in so many aspects of what we do. So, but, it, but I think that we will move to a place down the road where, um, where the 911 center will be operated under the, police, under the auspices of the police department. And so I, I've heard a lot of stories similar to yours, you know, in the short time amount of short time that I've been here where folks have said, you know, I called and, you know, the person just um, seemed to be asking me a series of questions that didn't make any sense. And what I try to explain is that, you know, they're tr even though it doesn't sound like it, like in the background, a lot of times the dispatcher or the call taker has already moved that information forward. And we are, we are already uh, beginning to get some of that information and, and starting to drive in the direction of where that call is coming from. The supplementary information that the dispatcher is or the call taker is getting from you is just to ensure that the officer has the best picture available as to what's occurring and before they get to the call. And it's very frustrating for folks that don't know that, but you know, at the, the time is of the essence, right? So the dispatcher is, or call taker is trying to get as much information from you as possible and then at the same time typing it in. So you talk about difficult, right? I mean, you're trying to talk to somebody that is having their worst moment you're trying to get as best accurate information as you can. You're trying to um, uh, type that into a format and then send it forward so that the cop that gets the call or the firefighter that gets response on this, on this crisis call has the best information and it has the best chance of being successful once they get there. But, but that interaction right there that's occurring is very, very difficult because at the moment, the person just wants an acknowledgement that help is on the way. And, and you know, I, I don't quite know, you know, right now, um, the the rub, the moment where, where some of that stuff happens um, because I, I haven't taken it over yet, but I know that we will be working on those things. So much happens at the 911 center that, that can impact the outcomes when we get to a call so that those things are really important, um, the 911 center. We're going to roll out something that I think is going to be very helpful in the future. And I think within the next 30 days or so, and it's called Live 911. So with Live 911, um, as these 911 calls are coming in, they're going to be able to be routed to the patrol officers that are on the, in the field listening for regular radio calls. They'll also be able to hear some of the Live 911 calls as they're coming in. So that gives them a little bit of a head start in hearing the location and getting to where they need to be. So at the same time that the call is being triaged by the, the call taker, the officer is also listening to this call, listening to that conversation, and then being able to kind of begin to use his experience as a cop and make determinations about like what's occurring and what the mode is and what we're going to do once we get there. Because so often 
the inf- even though they do their best right to get the information from the call t- from the person making the call and we uh, transfer that onto a, a format that goes to the dispatcher and it gets dispatched like it we we hear that we get to it as police officers and it and it does nowhere near resembles what the actual incident is never like very often i don't want to put a number on it but very very often wow so so with this live 911 the, officers, the game of telephone Yes, totally. <laughs> so with this live 911, we're going to kind of not eliminate the the key player in the middle, but we're going to have like just an ear into into that conversation and to help us also um, be able to better understand what's in front of us. It's going to be, I think, very good for us in that from a public safety perspective, we are going to be able to... Um, read between the lines in some incidents that sound like they're like, you know, if, if uh, unfiltered could come across in a way that um, dispatches us in a, like a very danger oriented kind of mentality going into something. But if the officer is listening to a lot of key things that are occurring in that conversation, they're able to kind of separate that and kind of go, okay, it sounds really bad, but some of those things are not making sense. So maybe it's not quite what I'm hearing. So sometimes people will say, I don't know. I think he's got a gun because they're trying to get, trying to make sure that they get the officer there sooner, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Right. And so then, as they're asking him more questions, and the officer's listening to this, and so some of those questions are not being quite answered the way that makes sense, and so the officer's listening, and from there, kind of throttles or adjusts his response to that call. Right. And he's not going headlong, thinking "man with a gun," right. but he's thinking something about the way this lady's reporting it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Do we really have a man with a gun? Maybe we don't. Yeah. So, um, Boy, that happens where people yeah. claim urge, non-existent urgency. In of. order to get us there faster. Oy. Yeah. Is that common? It can happen, right? And that's a component of why the call taker asks so many questions. Yeah. Oh, so. my goodness. Um, how is how is the detective shift to patrol duty going? So... Um, uh, it's not just detectives. It's like traffic officers. It's uh, um, some neighborhood resource officers that are going to have to spend some time in, uh, doing call taking. Um, there is not one aspect of our operations where I feel like, oh, it's okay. You know, we'll do less of that or we'll do less of this, especially with detectives. Detectives are so pivotal and important because every case that they're assigned has a victim to it. And, um, you know, obviously we're going to be careful about not sending detectives that are investigating an active robbery or sexual assault or a homicide. We're not going to send those guys to go do patrol duty when, when they just received a, you know, a, a, a high priority case or an investigation of that nature. Um, but we have property detectives that are also working cases. And so our detectives are, are going to be uh, doing one or two tours of patrol um, per month or per week. I forget what the ratio is going to be. But uh, in order for us to be able to meet what is, I believe, our, our basic staffing and our basic ability to deliver that front line of public safety to our community. And the reason is really simple. I mean, you know, over the last two years, whether it was because of the social unrest or the pandemic, uh, but we lost over 105 total members of the police department. 35 of those were police officers. And so on, a, on any given year, the police department loses about six or seven police officers a year for different reasons, retirement, termination, whatever. But 
we nearly doubled that statistic in the last two years. So that has led to us being at this place where we are um, short in our staffing, short in our ability to go out there and provide the kind of front-facing public safety that I think we need to have in order for us to be agile, in order for us to be responsive and to meet the moment when when some of these crimes are unfolding and happening in our city. Um, we had a we had a late night burglary where a guy used like a hammer to break um, through the glass casings and start to steal stuff on the north side of town. It was like two or three in the morning when the call came out and we responded, you know, uh, as an emergency call. And I don't know where the officers were coming from, but had they been able to kind of stay in their respective area of operations where they have, we have like four different areas within the city. That's like, that's your assigned beat. But because we don't have enough officers to keep them in those beats, they end up like being all over the city, Traversing right? Traversing the whole city. Yeah, exactly. So here at two or three in the morning, they respond across the city to this uh, burglary in progress and um, they don't get there on time. They get there only with enough time to kind of see a speeding car in a dark part of the city that has to be the only, has to be the car because it's the only one that's yeah. you know, driving away at a high, high rate of speed. They pursue it. Um, they try to make the stop on it, and, but they're not successful. And, and so they call off the pursuit. We don't pursue in those type of situations anyway, so the guy gets away. But there is a situation where I think to myself, okay, what if that was a home invasion and the seconds and the minutes really count and we have to be there in order to save somebody's life? Um, I don't. I need for us to have the right number of folks in our staffing in order to go out there and stay in their areas of, of um, uh, that they're assigned, whether it's you know beat one or beat four, whatever beat that they're assigned to, and work those areas, get to know that community, um, and not be in this mode because we're so short-staffed that they're having to crisscross the entire city uh, all throughout their day in order to cover all the calls for service because that's what we where we find ourselves today because we're deploying the this minimal number of officers out into the community um and and so not only did i feel that was not safe for the community but it was also i think not safe for the officers responding because they have to be um there for one another in so many calls for service that we don't know how those things are going to go right so you want to have your partner that comes and is, is with you and is a part of that call our officers do just phenomenal work. They're amazing. They're amazing on so many levels. Good, good people. Um, but I want to make sure that we give them uh, all the tools and all the opportunities to be successful because the environment that they go out and do this work in is completely unpredictable. And and our job, is, in as much as we can do, is to provide them the ability to be successful. And one of those is by making sure that um, there's enough of them to do this work and enough of them to uh, be there for one another um, in those in those critical incidents and critical moments. Like I would not want to send a single officer to a prowler call in the middle of the night, right? Because he's by himself looking for somebody who's up to no good, right? Don't yeah, right? right. So even though I might have a UAS overhead, that UAS can't land and do anything, right? It's, Soon it'll have pepper spray <laughs> built a, in. That's a great idea. No. Um, <laughs> So, so, but that gives you my, like my thought process, right? Of like, why well, I want to make sure that we have enough officers to be able to get to these calls on time and safely. Um, thank you for that. And I think I've got one more thing I want to yeah. uncover here. Um, and it seems like you're using the word values in this book and clearly, um, you have many strong values that have led to your success and how you think about people 
and how you want to manage law enforcement in cities. Yeah. Um, and it's warming to see that. Where do you see the, I, I look at a lot of what you've written actually as virtues in a lot of ways. And sometimes you don't know the difference. They're, they're pretty close, these words, right? And I guess, you know, what I can say is that when I think of who the type of person I want to be, type of person I want my child wants, uh, I want my child to be, and the way I would hope um, communities, civilizations would treat each other, it would be virtuous, mm-hmm. right? Um, perhaps virtuous is the subset of values that are all um, positive. Yes, which is really <laughs> from what I from what I gather from you is like really the impetus for why you wanted to have this podcast because you wanted to find the good things that are out there and um and i think you're you're trying to bring folks into a conversation with you and a wider audience in the community about the good things that are going on out there and how we can leverage and move those things forward um you're right i think that uh our organization is anchored in solid values, right? I think that I see that day in and day out. I came from the outside, so I get to walk around in the police department and, and look at the signs and the symbols, you know, near their workspaces or the things that they believe in and and the time that I spent with them, one-on-one conversations, riding around with them in the police car or having lunch. And I get to really understand like what drives them. So many of them are from Santa Monica. And so they have this... Um, this connection and this responsibility to their role in the, in the city and they know it inside and out and, and they feel responsible for it. And that's like, that's unlike, you know, in some cities where the police travel from a long distance and don't get me wrong. I mean, some of them travel from a long distance to come here too, but, but um, they have ownership of the community and, and, and they believe in what they're doing. They're inherently uh, good people. We're going to make mistakes. Don't get me wrong. We're going to make mistakes. And when we do, um, the things that we are going to espouse is that we will be transparent and accountable for those mistakes, whether internally or externally. Externally, um, I'll be the first one to step outside and say, you know, we erred. And I need you to have faith that we understand that and that we made a mistake and that we will get better and we'll continue to, to work through um, being accountable and transparent and getting better. It's, it's um I think if there's, if we look back on my podcast on, with you, it's going to be one of the things that comes up is like, he's continuously talking about getting better and continuing to improve. Because um, I think it's possible. I don't think that, that we should um, rest. I think that we should always be in movement. Forward progress. I suppose the harsh way of putting that is grow or die. Yes. <laughs> we should grow. We should grow. We should grow. Um, well, I... Again, I really enjoyed the book is called Do No Harm. And uh, I think it's, I hope enough people read this where it changes the lives of many in communities and they can develop the kind of, and go through the strategies you're talking about um, and employ those and create better communities. Um, I definitely, after reading this, see you as a man of virtue. Um, and uh, and I thank you. And um, I know you're just getting started here. You've only had a, not too long, a couple of months, right? Yeah, five five weeks. <laughs> a month, boy, just just longer than a month since you've been since you've been in. I'm oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Five months, five months. Oh, yeah, yeah that makes months. more sense. Yeah, yeah, my bad. Yeah, okay. I was okay. Um, and uh, I I know you're just getting started, but I can already see that we're on a good path. It feels that way. Thanks. Feels that way to me too. 
it is a it is a great city. Uh, I pinch myself every day that I walk out of my office and uh, smell the ocean air and and to be around our officers in our community. It is um, it is inherently a good place, a good department, a good city. Um, had great experiences and and I look forward to making a difference in our community and our police department. And I hope that uh, if there is a legacy to be had, it is that um, we were able to um, build the kind of leadership in in our department that makes it so that the one day down the road when I finally retire, retire, that um, there'll be just an amazing slew of candidates, men and women that are ready to take the reins and that uh, our city leaders will look at that and choose somebody from the inside. And, and so... My job is to foster that competency and character um, and, and courage and, and relationships internally now so that the table will be set um, for that next generation. Excellent. Thanks. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you. You nice too. Nice to chat. Nice to chat and, um, and have a wonderful day. Thanks. Thanks, you too. <laughs> have a great day. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Inside the Daily Press. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or listen on our website at smdp.com slash pod. Music for Inside the Daily Press is provided by the Brig Band, LA's premier jam band. To find out when and where you can hear them live, visit thebrigband.com. Thanks.